Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. We spend all this time imagining we're going to get ready for our dying. And I think it's a kind of absurd idea to imagine that at the time of our dying, we will have the strength of body, the emotional stability, the mental clarity to do the work of a lifetime. It's an absurd gamble. So we should do this work now. And that includes those of us who are not dying, who are with, you know, our, our aging parents, for example. Be with them now. Tell them you love them now. You know, um, you know, waiting is full of expectation. Waiting for the next moment to arrive. We miss this one. Uh-huh. You know, waiting for the moment of dying. We miss all the moments in between. So, so that's the great thing. Hold death out there as, as a shine, as a, you know, shine a light on it, so to speak, and hold it out there as a way of reminding you to attend to what most matters. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Wow. 
Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Frank, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, happy to be with you, Shreeni. Really happy to be with you. Yeah. You know, I was introduced to you by way of uh, somebody who's listened to the show. And when I found out a bit about the work that you do, I was incredibly intrigued, um, especially, I think, because I have a birthday coming up. So the whole idea of mortality and death is something that, not in a morbid sort of way, but something that I have been thinking quite about. But before we get to your work, um, I want to start with a question that I have found has been very fun and revealing with many people. And that is, what did your parents do for a living? And how did that end up impacting the choice? that you've made with your life and your career? Oh, that's a great question, actually. Um, my parents actually were worked for on a very large estate for a very wealthy banker, um, was head of one of the blue chip stock companies, actually. And my father was a chauffeur, actually, and, and worked for him. And we lived in this very mm, secluded um, kind of Garden of Eden, really. It was quite beautiful. And um, so I grew up with a lot of beauty around me. And that was a big, huge influence on my life, actually. Mm-hmm. But a bigger influence than their work was their life. And um, when we were, when I don't know, I was 10 or 11, we moved off that Garden of Eden, went out of the garden, so to speak, and they became, they really fell apart. They both became rabid alcoholics. They had a really tough time with life, and they died very early. And so their troubles in their life and their early death, um, well, it made me a companion, you know, made death my companion from a very early age. Mm-hmm. And uh, that had a huge influence on my life. Yeah. How old were you when they died? Uh, my, I was a teenager when my mom died and my dad died just a few years later. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious what sort of, um, coping mechanisms and life skills that you develop, uh, you know, from losing parents so early in your life. And, you know, I mean, that, that's not an easy, I, I can't fathom what it would be like to lose a parent at, you know, at the age of 13, both parents for that matter, and to navigate life on your own. So I'm curious kind of how, how, I mean, how did you navigate life on your own? 
Well, not so well at first, to be honest. Um, I think that uh, it's not uncommon for a lot of us to try to do our very best to keep whatever our form of our suffering is at arm's length. You know, so I tried to avoid it. You know, I, I did everything, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You know, I really did my best to stay away from what hurt, thinking that somehow I would um, could somehow avoid it. But, you know, at some juncture in our life, we have to turn toward that which hurts. We have to turn toward our suffering. It's the only way through, really. And so um, in my case, uh, Buddhist practice became part of my life very early on in my 20s. And that became a tool, a, a skill that I developed that allowed me to be with what hurt and uh-huh. to uh, and to uh, learn something from it. Wow. Um, so, you know. One of the things I'm curious about is what actually led to this work. Like, what has been the trajectory of your life and your career? I mean, you talked about losing parents, um, but how did you actually end up at this point? Yeah, well, it's, you know, I mean, what happens in life, right? Life accumulates. And if we're lucky, we pay attention and it shows us the way. Uh, Some of us have really clear plans and, you know, and we implement those. That wasn't the case in my life. So there's a wonderful story by Rubinjan Tagore, the, the Nobel Prize winner and Nobel laureate, rather. And um, he t- talks about the in India wandering, uh, you know, around a rock uh, to an overlook, uh, this kind of thing, uh, because the kids walked barefoot. And um, then when they got shoes, they carried heavy loads and the paths became very straight and purposeful. Uh, I think I walked barefoot for a long time. I think I meandered through my life. And um, and. Somehow that brought me to this point. I mean, there were big influences. I mentioned the death of my own parents at a very early age. That's a strong influence. Uh, Buddhist practice, which emphasized in its teachings the uh, study of impermanence, the constant change of every conceivable experience. That was a big influence in my life. Um, I worked for um, a little while in refugee camps in southern Mexico and Central America, where I saw a lot of horrible dying, uh, people in really desperate situations. And when I came back to the United States, um, the AIDS epidemic was just beginning. And I was on the early front lines of that epidemic, you know, in San Francisco, where we had, you know, 30,000 people were diagnosed with HIV over the course of years. So those were all important, really important influences. But I'll I'll tell you a funny piece of it. I have a son um, who's now a grown adult with his own children. But when he was being born, I I had this feeling that part of my work was to help his soul kind of get into into life, you know? And I knew his mom would get his body in just fine. But so I went to study with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, a very famous death and dying, you know, uh, teacher. And uh, and in those days, she was helping people die, you know, and helping them walk through this journey to death. And I thought, well, if she helps people die, maybe she could help me figure out how to get my son into this world. Mm-hmm. And so I studied with her and uh, she kind of took me under her wing and um, embraced um, my not only my interest in that particular time, but then sort of brought me back and mentored me for a good many uh, good time. And so. Uh, she was also a very powerful influence in my life, you know, really teaching me how to be with suffering, you know, um, how to stay very close to it and how to work with tremendous uh, people's tremendous uh, hurt and pain. Yeah. You know, as a, as a father, um, you know, it, it's interesting. I am curious, one, what you would tell to parents uh, about this conversation, because I, I doubt very much that parents are even thinking about the deaths of their kids. And yet, you know, that's an inevitable part of life. So I guess the question really is, you know, what would you tell to parents who want to get their kids to live, you know, the fullest and richest life? Well, 
first of all, those with who have young children, um, you know, really young children, kids five years of age or, or under, those kids are thinking about it. They're already thinking about their dying. They're not thinking about it in an adult conceptual way, but it comes across for them. It comes across their little minds, you know, and they want to know about it. And so it's really important that adults have honest conversations with them. They don't need all the details, but they need honest conversation. So here's an example. My son, when he was about four or five, we were driving down a country road where we used to live. And he, at one point, just in the middle of the drive, he said, Dad, are you going to die? And I, I looked at him and I thought, wow, how do I answer this one? And then I said, yeah, someday, someday I'm going to die. Just that. Yeah. Just say nothing more. And he said, oh, and he got quiet again. And then he said, is mom going to die? And I said, yeah, someday mom will die too. Like everything else, you know. Uh-huh. And he sat there for a little bit and we drove past this, our neighbor's house, which we who used to call Grandpa Tom. And, um. He looked at the house for a little bit. He knew Grandpa Tom had died. And then he turned and he said, Dad, am I going to die? And it was a really great question, you know. And I said, yeah, you're going to die too. Someday. Not right now. But someday, you know. And it was all he needed. He just needed me to answer him truthfully. He didn't need me to reassure him. He didn't need me to tell him a story, an imaginary story. He just needed to have it, have the truth told to him in a very simple way. Yeah. So so kids are thinking about it a lot. Um uh, when, when we're talking about our adult children, I think that's a different story, obviously. Yeah. Is that what, is that what you had in mind? Both. I'd, I'd love to hear both. Well, you know, you know, when, when people basically hit their 30s, uh-huh. they start, you know, you, you know that, uh, and they start changing, right? You start shifting. Sure. Uh, it isn't just about accomplishing and, um, you, know, you know, getting all the toys I can get. We start feeling a sense of belonging. Uh-huh. The community at large. We start having children. We maybe have more serious relationships, and um, we start to feel a greater investment in life and a wanting to live it in a responsible way. Yeah. And and one of the things that I think helps us in that is the reflection on death. Now that sounds morbid, but actually it's incredibly life affirming, because you know when we touch how precarious this life actually is, then we also touch how precious it is. And then we don't want to waste a moment, you know, then we want to jump into our life with both feet. We want to tell the people we love that we love them, you know. And, and so um, death has this, uh, the reflection on death, I should say, has this unbelievable capacity to show us what's really important. Yeah. And that's why it's important to keep it um, in a framework, not, to, not just to prepare for some moment at the end of a long road, but to recognize that it's with us all the time in the very marrow of um, our activities, maybe marrow of this life. Yeah. So I think it's life affirming. Yeah. Actually, the death. Yeah. You know, the, the, it's so interesting that you bring, you know, uh, 30s because I, I literally was just writing this. I, I do a post every year on, on my birthday. You know, usually it's like 38 life lessons from 38 years, and this year's is going to be 39 observations of a life that hasn't gone according to plan. <laughs> and, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about, and now that I have you on the air, I'm going to ask you about it because it's something that has troubled me. Um, you know, for this, for the longest time, I think I had this tremendous fear that I would end up alone. Um, and then I had two relationships that were really not that great. And I was kind of like, wow, this sucks. Uh, being alone is even better in some cases. You know, but that fear eventually waned. And, and the fear that has, has really concerned me um, is the notion that, wait a minute, I'm almost 40, I'm still single, and 
are my parents going to die before I have get married or, you know, have kids? Are they going to, am, am I going to have this profound life experience with one of my parents not there to see it? Mm-hmm. And I am very curious what you would have to say to me about this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, my, my, I guess what I want to encourage is to make sure you're spending the kind of time with them that you really want to now. Um, and don't wait for the big events of your life. Don't wait for the wedding or the, you know, their death or for some other, you know, major event. Yeah. But in the day to day, you know, I mean, look, we spend all this time imagining we're going to get ready for our dying. And I think it's a kind of absurd idea to imagine that at the time of our dying, we will have the strength of body, the emotional stability, the mental clarity to do the work of a lifetime. It's an absurd gamble. So we should do this work now. And that includes those of us who are not dying, who are with, you know, our, our aging parents, for example. Be with them now. Tell them you love them now. You know, um, you know, waiting is full of expectation. Waiting for the next moment to arrive. We miss this one. Uh-huh. You know, waiting for the moment of dying. We miss all the moments in between. So, so that's the great thing. Hold death out there as, as a shine, as a, you know, shine a light on it, so to speak, and hold it out there as a way of reminding you to attend to what most matters. Yeah. Try telling that to my mom. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think she would say to that? I don't honestly know. I mean, I I think, you know, a a big part of why I feel this way is because of the pressure that I get from family. I mean, it's a culture that I grew up in, you know, It, it, to be, you know, 39 and single and, and not married and not have kids. I mean, it's almost sacrilegious in the community that I grew up in, you know? Yeah, no, I understand. Um, and, you know, we, we take on these things, of course, and sure. feel enormous pressures and kind of they become our inner critic. And and um, and they tend to stop our growth, actually, when we when we take those kinds of belief systems on for ourselves. Yeah. You know, um, I, I was working, on, I teach a lot in Italy. And um, I was working with a young woman who was about 39, actually. Mm-hmm. And she was a doctor, great um, anesthesiologist. And we were working on the critic. We were talking about our self-critic, you know, and how, you know, it has its way with us, right? I mean, our critic's always there, right? When we're eating, when we're, you know, working, when we're making love, you know, there's our critic. And um, so we're doing this work. And she said, I don't really have a critic. I said, are you sure? And she said, yeah, I'm sure. And I said, would you like to find out? And she said, yeah. I said, you know, it could hurt. Are you sure? Yeah. So I just leaned in very quietly. No, no, no yelling, no. And I just said, how come you don't have any babies yet? Just like that. Just that simple. And she burst into tears. And what it was is that the cultural bias in her case, as a woman of childbearing years, you know, everybody expected that she would have a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the taxi cab driver says, where's your babies? You know? So um, I, I think this is, was part of her experience. And so what happened was after our conversation, how I held her and worked with her a little bit, she went into therapy. She did some work. She realized that she was really afraid of having a kid. She got through that fear, worked it out. Next year, she came back to the workshop. She's still a wonderful doctor. And she, now she has a child. And I don't mean that that's the outcome that has to come out of it. I just mean it's really important that we look and see how these kind of beliefs, cultural biases, et cetera, are affecting us, how they shape our lives. Sure. And, uh, and, and, you know, to really question them, uh-huh. you know, to inquire. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know, 
this is something that, that really struck me as, as I was thinking about our conversation. You know, we all know we're going to die, right? It, it's, you know, it, it makes its way into cliches and self-help books and, and everything imaginable, you know, like you, you kind of know this is an inevitable moment in your life. And at the same time, we don't have this sort of, you know, almost inherent appetite for risk and, and doing these wildly ambitious things. Um, it's not just our nature to say, you know what, I know I'm going to die, so I'm going to try to live as much as possible. Why is that? <laughs> well, you know, we, we have a tremendous capacity to distract ourselves from this truth, right? Uh-huh. Um, I mean, think about how we distract ourselves from pain, you know, even small physical pains, you know. You know, we, we, we're always, that's our primary practice in this life is distraction. You know, it isn't turning toward what's actually true. Look, here's the deal. As you suggest, we're all going to die. I mean, none of us are going to get out of here alive, right? So this is actually basically true. We know this to be so. But oftentimes I think we opt for comfort over truth. We take what is familiar and we stick with that. And sometimes what happens in the course of that is we get so mm, adjusted to what's familiar, thinking that it will somehow fend off what frightens us, that we start living smaller and smaller lives, not bigger and bigger lives. Yeah. You know, my experience is when we embrace dying, uh, it actually gives us more courage. Um, we take more risks. You know, we forgive more. We, we um, step into the mystery of life a lot more fully. Um, you know, that's what I learned from being with people at the end of life. Yeah. You know, they, they're not wasting time. They don't spend time on petty conversations. You know, they want to know what matters. And, and, you know, the two questions that matter most for people at the end of their lives is not whether or not, you know, they went on that holiday to Thailand or whether or not they bought that car that they wanted. The two questions are, am I loved and did I love well? Those are the two big questions. It, it, it always comes down to that, you know. You know, do I belong? Am I loved? Uh-huh. And did I love well, you know. And we don't have to wait to the end of our life to figure out the answers to that, you know. So, you know, I was going to ask you when, you know, you're working with dying people, I'm curious what they say when they reflect uh, on their work and their careers. And I'm curious also um, how different, how it differs from people who are rich and people who are poor. Yeah, well, that's a really good question. I mean, I, I, as you know, helped to co-found the Zen Hospice Project, which was the first Buddhist hospice in America. Yeah. We started in San Francisco, and for the most part, we worked with people who lived on the streets. I mean, I changed, you know, diapers on park benches behind City Hall a lot, you know. And a lot of the people I worked with lived in really terrible conditions, rat-infested hotels, um, park benches. They were alcoholics. They were prostitutes. They were homeless folks who barely survived, I would say, on the margins of society, and often they wore this face of resignation or they were angry about their loss of control or, or you know, they'd lost all trust in humanity. And some of them were from cultures that I didn't know, you know, speaking languages I couldn't understand. And some of them had this really deep faith that carried them through the process and others swore off religion years ago. There was this wonderful man, Ni Yuan, a Vietnamese man, who really feared ghosts, I remember. And then down the hall, right next to him, in the room next door, was Isaiah, who had these visits from his, what he called visits from his dead mother, you know. All this was living side by side, right? There was a man I worked with um, who contracted HIV from a blood transfusion, a working class guy, was a truck driver. But years before, a couple years before this, he disowned his gay son, right, because he was a gay man. 
And now both the son and the father had HIV. And they were in twin beds in the, in the same room being cared for by Agnes, who was, you know, the son's mother and the father's wife. Um, these are the folks I work with. And, you know, some of them were, you know, we worked with, you know, people who had from all stratas of society. So some people had, you know, tremendous resources and they were, um, you know, powerhouses in the city. Um, and others of them just had the shirt on their back, you know, and that's all. What I would say is that um, all of them were my teachers, every one of them. The ones who blossomed in their dying and, and found the kindness that they'd always been looking for. And also the ones that turned toward the wall and withdrawal and they never came back again. All of them taught me something, you know. They, they invited me into their life. They, 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 in the most vulnerable moments, they, they, um, they helped me get up close and personal with death. And in the course of that, they really showed me how to live. And so I'm ever grateful to them, really grateful to them, you know. Look, uh, our system, even even the hospice care system, which is predominantly was begun taking care of middle class white folks who had intact families. And, um, you know, when we went at the early days of the AIDS epidemic, when we were dealing with men, single men, oftentimes who had no family, uh, lived alone, um, some of in the early days, some of the hospices weren't caring for them. And so we had to create new systems. Um, and, you know, folks who have been living on the edges of society in some way, they don't have a lot of trust in the system. And so um, they often get less care, poor pain management, bad symptom control, um, and they don't necessarily access services. And I'm afraid we're, given the way things are going in the government, we may be headed for more of that. Yeah. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. You know, the, the other thing that really struck me was, you know, your upbringing of uh, being raised around wealth. And so, so I'm curious, you know, having had these perspectives, you know, being raised, you know, in this environment of beauty and wealth, um, losing your parents, and then also, you know, uh, working so closely with dying people from multiple economic spectrums, what's your own perspective on money and wealth as a result of this? Yeah, well, it's funny, you know, I, I've never hungered after wealth. It just hasn't been one of those desires. You know, I mean, I, it was a time in my 20s when that was a big part of my life. I literally used to produce rock and roll concerts. And I thought that, you know, that was going to make me rich and happy and just made me tired. It was fun. But you know, my, the thread through my life has always been service. It's always been compassionate service. And I suspect it's because I had a lot of fear. And, you know, having grown up in the conditions that I, uh, I encountered as, the early, as a young man. And so that service, that compassionate action was a kind of balancing factor, if you will, for, for all of that. So, so money's never been the driving force for me. Um, I've always fortunately had enough to sort of manage my life. Um, but I've been with people who are dirt poor. And I've been with people who have enormous wealth around the time of their dying. And honestly, yes, the folks who had a lot of money, well, they got better conditions. But it didn't necessarily make them any more open to their dying process, you know? Uh-huh. Um, you know, I, I, I work with, I'm thinking of this right now, this one um, family, very wealthy, really wealthy family. And, and um, the mom was dying of brain cancer. And, um, and she'd been badly abused by her husband and she came to stay with us. And, uh, it was, it was a tough, tough situation, you know, but over the course of the time uh, that she was with us, her husband and her made a reconciliation in part with our help, you know, and, um, but it took her dying really to really make that happen. They had a young boy who had down syndrome and he was, he was about 10 or 11, I guess, but he had sort of presented as a five or six year old. And when he, when the mom died, dad asked me, well, what should we do? You know, should we bring him or not? And I said, 
yeah, definitely bring him over, you know. And he said, well, I'm not sure. Maybe it'll frighten him. He said, maybe I should call his therapist. So she called the therapist, or he called the therapist. And um, the therapist said, no, don't do it. When I was a little girl, they made me kiss my grandfather in the coffin, and it was terrible. I, I don't recommend it. So he called back and he told me this. And I said, well, why don't you come over, bring Tommy, and bring the therapist? You know. <laughs> so they all showed up at the door, you know, therapist and dad and the rest of the family. And we went upstairs to mom's room where mom had died, you know, an hour or two before. And everybody was terrified. What will happen to young Tommy? And um, I just held Tommy's hand and he went right up to the bed and he just kissed his mom on the forehead as he had every other visit he'd made. And then he looked at me and he said, where has all that gone? That's what he said. Where has all that gone? And uh, everybody was frightened, you know, what, what, what will we, how will we answer this? And I said, I don't know, Tommy, what do you think? And he gave me this really great story that was somewhere, you know, a, a morphing, a, a, rather a story that talked about the morphing in the Terminator and the, a butterfly moving out of a cocoon. He had made up this really imaginary, wonderful way of understanding it. And so we all stayed there and we stayed with the mom, you know, through the course of the, um, uh, the evening. And everybody talked. And everybody visited. And this is the way it would have been done, you know, 50 or 100 years ago. And then at the end of the evening, everybody decided to go home. And I asked if I could have a few minutes with Tommy. And Tommy, um, just Tommy alone in, in the room with me. And I said, Tommy, if there's anything you want to say to your mom, if there's anything you want to do with your mom, now's the time. And so he did the most amazing thing, you know. Shreena, he went over to his mom and he touched her whole body her face and her arms, her hands, you know. And then he leaned in and he smelled her. He actually put his nose to her and he smelled her. And it reminded me once of being on a country road. A, uh, a mother deer had been hit by a car and a fawn was there next to the mother deer trying to understand what had happened, you know, to understand it in a visceral way, you know. That's what Tommy was doing. And I, and I said sometimes, you know, wonder, I wonder, wouldn't it be amazing if adults could do something like that, you know? If adults could get that close, in a way, and be that unfrightened about death? I wonder how it would change our lives, you know, if we didn't see death as the enemy. You know, if we thought of it as the culmination of a whole lifetime, you know? As maybe the greatest opportunity for transformation we'll ever have, you know? Um, I think that's some of what Tommy discovered. And, and um, I think that's available to us all the time, whether or not someone's dying in our family or, or we're diagnosed with a serious illness. It's always available to us, you know. Let's just look and see how we meet endings, you know, at the end of the day or when we leave, you know, a meeting with a colleague or, you know, we're at an event and we leave, you know, how do we say goodbye to people, you know. Pay attention to endings. And I think that helps us enormously to understand something about our relationship to death. Um, one of the things that, that the other things that really uh, kind of came up for me is, as we're talking about this that I, I just thought of is, is I'm curious about what the experience of death uh, looks like across different cultures. Mm. Uh, you know, because I, I always jokingly tell my parents, it's like, yeah, Indian people, you know, are on a deferred life plan because they believe in reincarnation. And I personally am concerned that I'll be reincarnated as a cockroach. So I'm going to, you know, put everything I have into this life. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I'm genuinely curious, like, what your work has shown uh, about sort of death across different cultures. 
Yeah, well, of course, it you know it varies enormously, and and the challenge with the question like this, of course, is not the answer in stereotypes. Yeah, you know? of course. But um, you know, um, cultural programming, cultural conditioning can have a huge influence. You know, uh, so here's some examples. So. Uh, I'm working with a Latino family. Uh, I see them in the hospital. I've gone. Their father's being referred to the hospice. He's the padrone. He's the head of the family. And I meet in the hallway, and there's 14, 15 people there all want to talk to me. This is pretty typical, right? And they said to me, don't tell our father that he's dying. Will you promise us that you won't tell our father that he's dying? I said, I promise you. I won't, I won't do that. Mm-hmm. You know? And... Um, I said, but can I go in the room alone? Yes, you can. So I went into the room, sat down with the father. He said, I know who you are. You're here from the hospice. He said, I only have one request. I said, what is it? He said, don't tell my family that I'm dying. <laughs> don't tell my family that I'm dying. I said, I promise you, I won't do that. You know. So there's this kind of collusion that can sometimes happen at, out of a loving protection, actually. A loving protection. That's what it is. And, and so in some cultures, uh, the dying experience is is absolutely shared through the, with the whole family. And everybody's there, auntie and uncles and, and, and cousins and the whole lot, you know. Um, and that's beautiful, beautiful, one beautiful way in which that happens, you know. There's other cultural conditions where people want to die alone. No, no, I, you know, I, I'm, I call a family member and say, it looks like your mom might be dying. And they say, okay, well, I, I'm not going to come because I want to see her the way I remember her, you know, the way I saw her last week. They don't come, you know, and that's a different kind of model that, that's out there. I don't have any judgments about how people should do this. I, I just think people do it in their own way and according to the, you know, they're often according to the conditions in which they were raised. You know, in, in some traditional Chinese families, there's enormous grieving that happens around the time of dying. Sometimes even a very public kind of grieving where there's wailing and push shaking of the bed and all manner of things, you know. Um, that's not the way the New Englander, you know, dies, you know, the, the, the Boston Brahmin, I call them dies, you know, they often die in a different, different, totally different context. So it depends enormously. It depends enormously on the culture. You know, African-American families have really different ways of doing it. And there's no way of saying this is how African-American families do it. But, you know, um, you know, we know, for example, that African-American families don't use hospice services as much, in part because families take care of each other, you know, and they're not inviting strangers into that process sometimes. Sometimes that's the case. So, again, we got to be careful about not pushing, you know, promoting sure, something. Yeah. Here. But, um, you know, I'm thinking about you and your mom and the question that you're, you're thinking about, uh, uh, you know, you might come back as a cockroach. Yeah. Um, there was a guy I worked with. His name was Jackie. African-American man, a heroin user for 30 years. And he was staying at the Zen Hospice Project, right? And the volunteers had given him this kind of bracelet. The bracelet had three colors. And so one day I'm in the backyard with Jackie and I, I'm a very curious guy. And so I said to Jackie, I said, Jackie, what's that bracelet you got on? Oh, I don't know. The volunteers gave it to me. I said, well, what's the colors mean? He said, well, the green's for life and the red's for passion. The black, I don't know what the black's for. I said, okay. I said, hey, Jackie, here you are in this, this Zen hospice. All these Buddhists. I said, you know, anybody talking to you about reincarnation? He said, yeah, they talk about it sometimes. I said, well, you think you're going to get born again, Jackie? He said, yeah, I do. I said, oh, what are you going to do? He said, you know, I said, maybe you come back as a cow, you know? He said, no, I'm not coming back as a goddamn cow. (laughs) And I said, well, you know, what are you coming back as? He said, Jackie. 
I said, Jackie, why do you want to be Jackie? I said, you can, you can be a king or a queen. You, know, you want to choose that? No. So I want to come back as Jackie. I said, how come? He said, because next time I'm going to get it right. And you see, we're into a whole different conversation now, Srini. You see? You know, I, if I had sat down with Jackie and said, okay, we're going to have a counseling session now about your dying and what you think about it, he wouldn't have said a word to me. Yeah. But because I was curious and, and we were playful in it also, and I wasn't, I didn't have a prescribed idea about what the outcome should be. You know, we could have a really honest conversation, actually. So I, I think that's one of the things that we, we, we miss sometimes in this culture is we're afraid to talk about dying. You know, we, we talk about it as a death-denying culture, and I don't agree. I don't think that's true. I think we're hungry to talk about dying, really hungry to talk about it. It's just that we're afraid. And we need somebody to talk to about it who isn't so afraid, you know. And and that's a beautiful gift you could give to your parents. Yeah. What do people say uh, about love and relationships when they're close to death? Well, you know, um, I think our romantic notion of death is that everybody makes these reconciliations and, you know, family systems come together and uh, it's all well. And oftentimes that's the case because, um, you know, there's a kind of urgency, right, to get it together. Mm-hmm. But I think actually, you know, the, the habits of a family system tend to get exacerbated in around the time of dying. So if there's a tendency toward, you know, coming together, well, that's going to probably get stronger. And if there's a tendency toward conflict, that's going to get stronger. So absolutely, there can be tremendous moments of beautiful um, forgiveness. Um, well, here, let me share a story. There's a guy, there was a woman, one of the first women we ever took care of at the hospice. Her name was Blaze. And um, she stayed with us at Zen Center. And during the course of her stay, she asked us if we'd get a hold of her brother. Her brother was a cowboy. He rode the rodeo circuit. And this was in the days before the internet, if you can imagine such a thing. And so we found him. We found him through the rodeo association and he came to Zen Center. At this point, we, we were actually taking care of people at the main Zen center, which where there was monks and nuns. And he showed up at the door with a cowboy hat and a silver belt buckle and snakeskin boots, you know. And he said, what kind of a place is this you got my sis? And I brought him upstairs to her room and he couldn't go in. It was too, too scary for him. They hadn't seen each other in 25 years, right? So one day we're, we're downstairs in the courtyard and we're shooting the breeze. And, and I said, uh, Travis, Travis was his name. I said, Travis, I got to go home now, take care of my kids. And he said to me, I want to tell her it, but I can't tell her it. And I said, well, Travis, what do you mean? I said, you know, if there's something you got to tell your sis, there's not much more time. No, I'm not good with words, he said. I said, well, tell me. And so he told me this really difficult story of their childhood and how they'd been abandoned and lived in orphanages and forced to homes and he'd been really tough with her. He had been abusive to her in lots of ways, you know. And this had led to them splitting apart and, you know, not seeing each other as adults. And he was, you know, riddled with regret. And so I, after he told me this story, because sometimes people have to tell their story, I said, let's go upstairs and see your sis. And so we went up to her room and he pulled up a chair next to her bed. And uh, he leaned in and he said, sis, he says, but something I've been wanting to tell you for years. He said, but you know, I'm not so good at words. 
And she did the most amazing thing, Trini. She lifted up her hand like a like a policeman, you know, at a stop at a stoplight. And she said, "Look," she said, "in this place, I have somebody who bathes me. I have somebody who feeds me. I am surrounded by love. There is no blame." And it was the most extraordinary moment of forgiveness I've ever witnessed. It was beautiful. A whole lifetime, really. Forgiven, not forgotten, but forgiven in that moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think Rusty could have, I mean, uh, Travis could have um, received that gift had he hadn't also told the story, you know, to me. Yeah. There was room now for this forgiveness. So sometimes it's like that and it's beautiful. And there's tremendous love that emerges, even though there's been a difficult life, you know. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't always work out that way. Look, dying is beautiful and, and tender and, 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 and mysterious, all those things. It's also messy, but most of all, it's ordinary. All of us will go through it, you know? And, um, and, you know, again, I don't want to tell romantic stories about dying. I want us to be real about it, you know? Um, but yeah, I think mostly toward the end of life, what matters is, am I loved? I love well, you know, and and it isn't always the family. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, you know, it was me. It was me loving that person. When people used to come to volunteer with us, I used to say, are you really ready to let somebody into your life, you know, to let your heart really be open, you know, and then really to have your heart for that person to die and for your heart to be broken. Are you, do you have room for that in your life, you know, because if you don't, you know, this isn't the place for you. You got to let yourself be touched by this. You got to let your heart really be, you know, moved by this. That's where you learn what really works. You know what really helps. Yeah. And it, you know, it doesn't always turn out good, Trini. You know, I just shared with you this beautiful story of it working out well, right? And so not, there's the opposite. If it's okay with you, I'll, I'll share yeah, with you. Please do. So, so imagine a young woman, 38 years old, dying of cancer. And she'd had a really tough time with her mom. I mean, a horrible time with her mom. And my mom was just really cruel to her. And now this woman had slipped into a kind of somnolent state. So she was sleeping all the time, not really a coma, but sleeping, not eating, hadn't, wasn't rousable for about two or three days. And her mother came in that time from the other side of the country and sat next to her bed and began to really um, f- ask for forgiveness, apologize for the hurt that she'd done. Everybody, every family has hurt each other, you know, but in this case, it was pretty tough. And in the middle of this, you know, session of asking for forgiveness and apology, the daughter who hadn't spoken in days sat up in bed like a rocket. And she looked at her mom straight in her eye and she said, I hate you. I've always hated you. And then she died. Yeah. How do you keep your heart open in that kind of hell? You know, I mean, everybody in the room was suffering. The mother, the volunteers who were in the room, me, you know. And, and, and our, of course, our story is this is the worst possible outcome, right? This is the worst possible dying you could have. But there's some other side to that. And it is that this daughter actually got to speak the truth. She got to say what was actually true for her, that maybe she was holding on to for a really long time, you know. Now, I worked with that mom for six months afterwards, helping her through her grief. And it was really important, actually, what the daughter had said to her because she, she had to face it. 
she had to face the pain that she had engendered. And it was a really important part of her grief process, you know. So I don't know. I don't know what will set us free. I don't know what will, you know, help us most. And so I've got to be open. I've got to be willing to welcome whatever arises in the room, yeah, and work with it. That's been my work for 30 years now. Wow. Um, so I have two other questions about this. Um, one is is based on the Brownie Ware article, you know, the top five regrets. Um, you know, reading it in an article to me doesn't quite do it justice uh, as, you know, as a- being able to ask somebody like you. One, what do people regret? And two, what are they afraid of when they're in that moment? Yeah, yeah, both really good questions. I mean, I think the problem with that, with not just the question, but with that idea is that we try and look ahead and think, okay, what's the thing I'm going to regret? So I'm not going to do that. And I'm going to make sure I live a life that doesn't create that. And that's actually healthy. Mm-hmm. You know, not trying to get straightened out in the last week of life, you know, living our life in a way that is full and rich and, and meaningful and purposeful so that we don't walk into our dying with, with regrets. Um, people are afraid of all kinds of things. You know, they're afraid it will hurt. Right? The dying will hurt. And so we can do something about that. You know, in about 90% of the cases, we can actually mitigate that concern by with good pain management. And, and it ought to be done well. I mean, we used to have, you know, morphine by the 55-gallon drum and Zen Hospice pretty much, you know, I'm being facetious. But, mm-hmm. no, it's really important to have good pain symptom control, pain management symptom control. Yeah. But then that's not all there is. You know, the, People are afraid that they'll be abandoned. They're afraid that there's no future in a life with them and that they don't have a lot of anything to contribute to this life. And so people will leave them and won't be with them. So we can mitigate that again. We can we can address that again by saying, I'm right here. You know, I'm not going anywhere. I will be here. I promise you, I will be here. And that's the way that we can address that fear. But the third one is a little more difficult and it's challenging and it's, it's, um, Dying is a stripping away process, particularly dying that comes from long-term illness. It's a kind of stripping away process. All the ways we've defined my, ourselves, you know, I'm a Buddhist teacher, I'm a father, I'm a, you know, whatever it is, all these roles that we have and identities that we carry, they're stripped away by illness or they're gracefully given up, but they all go at some juncture. And then who are we? And then we come to something far more fundamental and essential about our life. And it's not enough just to have a belief system about that. You know, beliefs come and go. We have to have some direct, immediate experience of our life that's reliable for us. It doesn't come and go. Yeah, Everything's happening all the time. Everything's, everything's changing all the time, rather. It's all coming and going all the time. This is the nature of impermanence. Yeah? Yeah. What is it that doesn't come and go? You know, What is it that doesn't come and go? That's a really important question for us to grapple with. And, you know, religion has tried to answer that for a lot of people, but that I don't that's not going to satisfy us on our deathbed. What's going to satisfy us is what do we actually have confidence in? Yeah. Uh-huh. And so we have to answer that question now for ourselves. We have to address that now. So when I'm dying, I want mastery. I want somebody who really knows what the hell they're doing and manage pain. <laughs> but that won't be enough. And that's the problem. You see, right now we're giving dying over to medicine. Yeah. And it's too profound for medicine. I mean, medicine's great, but it shouldn't be the only player in the, in the mix. So, I want somebody who has mastery, but then I want somebody who can help me in the territory of meaning, who help me fig- can figure out what's the value and purpose of this life. What's, the, what's my relationship to dying, to the suffering that I'm in the midst of? 
So meaning, right? Now, but there's a juncture in the dying process where meaning doesn't matter anymore, where we step into a third territory, and that's the territory of mystery. That's the territory of unanswerable questions, right? Where the best we can do is stay in the room and not run away, right? This is the land of adventure. This is the land where we don't know. And we have to be willing to hold that that not knowing, that openness, you know, to our experience. It's an adventure we can't possibly know in advance. Nobody can really tell you what happens after you die. We don't know. But the process of dying, if, so if we could think about it as this continuous unfolding, this kind of adventure that we live into in order to know, this, I think, is a really healthy way of going about it. And the people that are able to do that, they don't have too many regrets. But they haven't started it then. They started it some other time in their life. You know, the, the people that have an easy time with dying have lived into the deeper questions of what it means to be human throughout their lives. And that's what really supports them in the time of their dying. Yeah. Wow. So this is a very weird question, but I, it, it's something I've been thinking about because of the fact that I'm writing a book about creative habits and, and you know, writing a book about using the digital world to create. I mean, when people pass, when we have this almost digital avatar of them, I mean, what is the implication of that in death um, from your work? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, you know, we don't know yet. <laughs> we don't know yet. I mean, we're, we're, we're kind of discovering our way into this, aren't we? Yeah. You know? I mean, what happens to somebody's Facebook profile? Been, yeah, exactly. You know, um, you know the, the, does, their does their birthday keep coming up on everybody's feed? You know? uh -huh. um, so I think that, there's a couple of possibilities. One is I think there's a, there's a real possibility that legacy could really be supported and helped by this, you know, that um, that's part of it. The other is that, you know, because of our, because of technology, we can have a lot more contact with one another. You know, you've probably got relatives that live on the other side of the world, you know, you can be in contact with them. You can see them. They don't have to, you don't have to make a trip to their deathbed in order to visit with them. So those are incredible incredibly valuable um, tools that we have available to us. What happens though to our, what happens to our sense of self, you know, when, when it gets frozen in a digital world, you know, I mean, one of the things that it's difficult about our digital world is that while the technology keeps changing, the information doesn't change. So, you know, the, the story we have about someone doesn't get to be updated. It doesn't get to continue to evolve. And so it gets a little frozen in time. And that doesn't help us, you know. When we're grieving the loss of someone that we love, we have to kind of allow them in a way to keep changing, you know. We have to allow the relationship with them to keep changing in a way. When someone dies, the relationship with them doesn't end, you know. So, so we have to keep, you know, letting that evolve. And some of it's seeing more about them. You know, in the beginning, maybe it's, we hate them, or maybe it's we have a romantic story about their dying, and part of the grieving process is is becoming more increasingly more real about our relationship with them, you know. And um, so it's hard to say, you know, it's really hard to say. I don't know, I don't know how it's going to go, you know. I'm curious to see how how and how we can use it in, in positive ways. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> well, this has been truly, truly profound. Um, 
you know, one of those those conversations, I think, that I and I'm hoping a lot of listeners will revisit over and over again. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Hmm. Well, I think um, uh, it's when we really look in and see the uniqueness of every human being, you know, um, and if we're curious, if we're really curious, we can see that about each other and ourselves, you know. Um, having said that, I think there's another part, which is that while we are incredibly unique and differentiated and, and beautiful and diverse in our beauty, we're also part of the same fabric. And when people recognize that about themselves, I think it gives them a depth um, to their lives that um, supports them and is a reliable guide through their whole entire lives. And, and the, that's what I strive for in my own life, you know, to recognize my own uniqueness, but also I'm not separate from everybody else. And so there's a way in which their suffering is also my suffering. And, you know, their joy is also my joy. And um, that's, a, that's a beautiful way to go through our lives. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and uh, share your story and your insights with our listeners. This really uh, has been mind-blowingly profound. Well, I really appreciate it. And, you know, if people want to study it more, they can look at my book, which is called The Five Invitations. You'll find it on Amazon and local bookstores. And, um, you know, I encourage you to, to pick it up and maybe use it as a way of having a dialogue with uh, family and friends, you know, um, so that we don't wait. Don't wait until the end of our life um, to learn what death has to teach us. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. 
This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.